Hi, my name is Sangal Saviki, and I'm the mayor of Cambridge. And I'm Alana Mallon, vice mayor, and this is our podcast, Women Are Here. Hello. We're here. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Um, it's almost August, which I can't believe. Somehow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, July just went by super fast for some reason, even though the last four and a half months have been the longest decade of my life. Um, but happy almost August. Happy almost August. Um, it's, I'm at the office and I'm excited to leave after this podcast. I hope I can. I hope you can too. I hope you can too. Uh, there's air conditioning at least. I know. Well, in parts of City Hall, there's air conditioning. I was down in the basement doing diaper Ooh, delivery this yeah. morning and I was like, Woo, it is hot in here. I know. I saw you and I was like, hi, <laughs> my friend. Thanks for doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the chamber, oh my God. We all talk about Monday night, but being there Monday night, I was sweating. How you do it, because I was there yesterday morning for an economic development committee hearing, and it was not as hot as Monday was, and it was also in the morning, and there wasn't any people in the room, and I was like, I almost passed out. It's hot. (laughs) Imagine, imagine. Um, Anyway, it's been a while since we've done this, and this is our first time recording ourselves doing it, which is funny. I'm like, (laughs) do I take my glasses on? Do I keep them on? I found my headphones somehow nice. somewhere okay. in the bottom of my bag. Um, so yeah, it's nice to, to see you. Nice to see you too. Uh, and yeah, we have uh, so much to talk about. Uh, we'll start with what we do best, which is TV. TV. Have you been watching anything good? You know, I, I've been so busy, uh, but I did have some time to watch Indian matchmaking. Oh my god, that's so good. I loved it. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like it's about this auntie and Aunt Sima auntie who is a matchmaker, for those of you who haven't watched it, and it's mm-hmm. hilarious. And she's basically trying to get all these like South Asian young women and men married. Um, and you see how much the parents are involved. <laughs> They're really involved. One of them, some of the moms were really involved. They were horrible. (laughs) They were horrible. It's so funny. If you haven't watched, it's six episodes. You'll like get sucked in. It's really funny. Uh, I suggested you watch it, Alana, and you, you know, you watched it pretty quickly. Yeah, it was good. And there was a, I was glad that you had just seen it because I was there. I was like texting you like, oh my gosh, this mom is terrible. <laughs> She's awful. But I thought like we have a really hard job, but that Seema auntie, that matchmaker, <laughs> oh, that is a hard yeah. job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, but there was, she there, was a couple, job. there was a couple couples that I was really excited that they found each other, you know? Kind of, well, you've seen the end. I did. You finished it. Well, yeah. Did you read the article about what happens after? No. I'll send it to you. Oh, okay. It is spoilers. Uh, but yeah, I knew one of my classmates in law school was in the second episode, and he's like the first guy like um, Nadia goes on a date with. <laughs> it was just really funny seeing him there. <laughs> I'm Facebook friends with him, and he like was like, oh my God, like Netflix played me. Like they chose all the awkward parts oh i bet yeah i mean I'm, I'm like you know what can you expect right like they have to make tv and it have to be funny um so anyway that's what i've been watching what about you 
Um, oh, so, well, you know, I love to watch shows about serial killers. So, of course, I'm watching <laughs> I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO, which is um, the story about Michelle McNamara, who was married to Patton Oswalt, who's like a really famous actor. Um, she was oh, a true, yeah. she was a true crime uh, detective and she, you know, she had a blog and she was really popular and famous for this true crime blog. And, um, she got obsessed with the golden state killer who, who serially raped 50 women and then killed 13 people like in the seventies, like between the seventies and eighties. And, um, they, no one, no one had any idea who he was. And so she got obsessed with, um, finding this killer and she was writing a book about him. And, um, I mean, it's not a spoiler alert, but she, she died um, investigating and writing this mm-hmm. book um, because she was so into it. And so she was taking all these pills. So like, you know, you, the story is really about her um, and how she would take like Adderall in the morning and then she would take like a Xanax at night and then she would take something to sleep and um, she overdosed. Uh, it's tragic. So, but like, she was really trying to solve this mystery and um, after her death, they did end up solving uh, the, you know, the Golden State Killer and they found him. And um, I mean, it's, it's not a secret, but it was, it was a cop that was involved in, um, in some of the cases. So it's a really good show. The last episode is on a Monday night. So I'm like waiting, waiting, waiting. Um, But it's, it's, it's really good. And it's tragic and sad. And she, you know, like they have a young, they have a daughter and she's really little and, um, but it, anyways, it's very, very good. It's very well done. And of course, if you like serial killers as much as I do, it's like an excellent show. <laughs> I'm not sure you, you don't like that genre. So I'm not sure. I you know, like I, it. I, it depends on my mood. It depends on the day. These days, maybe. So. <laughs> Cause you're dreaming of serial killing. <laughs> uh, um, so I've also been listening, speaking of, uh, pop culture, uh, Taylor Swift's new album came out um is, is it good folklore it's so good um she worked with um one of the guys from one of my favorite indie rock bands which is the national and another guy um from bonnie Vare. and um it's really different than her other stuff it's like perfect for the pandemic it's you know it's very mellow haunting love songs um you know she doesn't really do love songs as much as she does like like break your heart songs which i really love i'm not a but love has- song gal but she has that like original love song that I really like, which is like, "You were ten and I was eleven, or not those ages, or, like you were like a farmer or something." Oh my god! You know, like oh my god, you belong was not with me forever. <laughs> oh, that's the one that Jasper loves. I think that really is her only love song. Like the rest are like, "You broke my wrong, heart, right? I hate you." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a great song, but um, I actually I, there's one. <laughs> There's one song on the new album. I forget what it's called. Um, evic- evicted or Exile. Exile. So good. So good. Okay, so highly- Jasper is 10 years, what, 12, 10 years old? She's 12. 12. She's 12, 12 okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We have good taste, right? Same, same. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Let's get All to right, it. Let's get to the serious stuff. Let's uh, get to so- the serious stuff. As far as uh, COVID in Massachusetts, there's about 109 thousand cases and as of this morning um over 1.1 million massachusetts residents have been tested for COVID 19 
Um, so I've been watching the the data that's been coming out of the state, and um, yeah. for the last two days, the state has reported over 300 new cases each day, which seems to be um, largely due to a reporting error from a, a large hospital group, which means that the positives over the error in reporting um, got dumped into the last two days. So it's not as dramatic as it you know it seems on first glance. We've had you know mid hundreds to two um, hundreds for the past week or so. A couple of weeks, but then you know the past two days have been over 300. So the positivity rate is around two percent and was 1.7 percent last week at this time. So it's definitely something to pay attention to um, that that number rising and as things start to become more open and people are traveling. But in Cambridge, our positivity rate is less than one percent. It has been for a while. So um, in Cambridge, the statistics are that the health department has reported a total of 1,183 Cambridge residents have tested positive for COVID-19 and 99 residents have passed away um, from this virus. And in Cambridge, you've only had 81 new cases since July 1st. So that's about two to three people per day. Uh, and of the 99 deaths, uh, 72 uh, of the residents were living in nursing homes or long-term care. Facilities in 27 uh, were in the community uh, and something Alana and I have been pushing and along with many um, members of the council has been this focus on testing because testing is really um, key uh, and so we're excited to announce that for the month of August the city of Cambridge will be increasing testing uh, by 30 percent uh, and so you can uh, check out Cambridge dash slash COVID 19 um, and click on the testing and there'll be a link to schedule an appointment. And so unfortunately, you know, we are, we wanted these appointments to come out soon. Uh, they will be coming out probably uh, tomorrow uh, or, you know, sometime early next week. And so we're, we're really working to get them posted and updated on there as it is July 31st. Uh, and so the testing that has been done this month so far um, has gone well. Uh, the testing dates were filled up uh, quite quick, quickly. Uh, there were more testing days added uh, towards the end, uh, and people were reporting a 24-hour test turnaround, which is really, really important. Yeah, and I actually just heard from the city manager. They are updating the, um, the appointment schedules uh, by the end of the day today. So those should be ready uh, for you to click on and schedule an appointment for you and your family. They're free. Um, definitely get tested. Uh, we'll share the info. Yeah, definitely. I'll tweet them after this podcast. Um, so, so that's all good news about the testing. Um, Samuel, before we get into the city stuff, can you tell us what is happening with schools? I think we're all kind of dying to know. Uh, where Cambridge mm -hmm. is and where we're heading and what the, the next key dates are and what people are thinking. I'll be the fifth. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. And you don't want to answer a question. Uh, so it's really complicated. Uh, and it, this has been by far the most challenging part of this year um, is schools. And so the school committee has been meeting quite frequently to figure out um, what to do. But as you may guess, what to do shifts every day mm -hmm. uh, based on science and based on data. Uh, what we do know what we're supposed to do is that uh, we have to submit to DESE, uh, formerly known as the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, 
by the end of today uh, three distinct plans. Uh, what the plans would look like if we were going to do remote learning, what they'd look like in person, and what they'd look like in hybrid. Uh, and I, they, they are going to be submitted, uh, but I already know that some of what is being submitted will probably change um, before next week. Uh, and August 10th of next week is when Jesse would like uh, another kind of final of, are you doing remote? Are you doing in-person? Are you doing hybrid? And tell us what that looks like. And so in a nutshell, I can just say that um, we've, we have experts that we are um, you know, chatting very closely with. Uh, I think there are key um, issues that are coming up. Um, you know, we we recognize that there's a lot of different needs in the community and a lot of different fears. Um, and the age groups too, uh, the data indicates that if you're older, 10 or up, you're much more likely um, to be able to transmit, uh, you know, uh, at the, you're transmitting COVID, COVID as, as, um, at the same rate as adults. Uh, and so that's worrisome. But you know, yet just yesterday, there's another study study that came out that said, "Oh, children also carry high viral uh, loads." And so, oh, I saw that. Yeah, right. And so, what does that mean, right? And so, the, we have a, you know, we've been relying on, you know, Bradley Bernstein from MGH and the Broad Institute, um, Jill Crackenden, who's a research scientist out of um, MIT, MIT, and who's also the co-chair of the COVID nineteen um, Cambridge, uh, City of Cambridge expert advisory panel. Uh, we've been talking to Helen Jenkins, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist from Boston University Public School of Health, and Lisa Dobertine, um, the medical director for school health and public health programs from the Cambridge Public Health Department, have also been on, in on these conversations. And so, you know, we know that there we, we potentially can create safe environments um, through distancing at six feet, through use of masks, through frequent air, you know, uh, through hand washing, air cleaning and ventilation and testing. But again, all of those things are so variable um, and have, you make a lot of assumptions. You make assumptions that kids will throughout the day wear the masks and, um, you know, uh, you make assumptions about, you know, if, we know, you know, on are all the buildings up to date, you know, so the school committee has been pushing for a lot of key information that we really need. We, you know, the, the schools have bought CO2 uh, monitors to check air quality. They've watched, they've bought air scrubbers to clean the air. They've we've gotten window box fans to circulate fresh air. We have a lot of PPE on deck. Um, you know, we've, there's all these things that have been done, but it really, it's really going to come down to also thinking about what the families are saying. Are there educators who will be available to even teach, right? There's just all these scenarios. And so it is really difficult. Um, and for me and for you, I think we've just talked about this testing piece. Uh, you know, we know that Harvard and MIT are testing their students twice a week uh, and they're, they're testing their staff. Uh, and we've both pushed that we have to have testing at a minimum, right, available for staff and educators, uh, but then really for bringing people back, especially, you know, high schoolers, there has to be a way to, to do surveillance testing. Um, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the worry is that the Burke Institute 
probably, you know, is filling up with capacity, right? Yeah. You know, with everything they're doing. Uh, so all that to say, we will have to make a decision soon um, and probably next week, uh, probably August 6th um, or, or 7th at the latest on whether it's going to be just all remote for everyone, whether it'll be um, remote for these certain age groups and uh, a hybrid feature uh, for, uh, you know, certain age groups. I do know that, and you know that the Department of Human Services preschool programs are starting uh, next week on Monday, uh, and they're bringing um, about 10 per class back, and that that's kind of their its own thing that we're you know really going to watch and see as well. Uh, there are we know that programs for younger kids have gone back and have been active all summer, uh, and so far we haven't heard um, anything right like to throughout the summer of those programs having outbreaks or problems, which is a good thing. Um, I think as you move into the high school age, you think about density, <laughs> you think about how many kids can, you know, even with social distancing, the hallways, there's all these, like the practical reality on the ground. Uh, anyway, it's keeping me up. It's keeping my school member, school committee members up. We're, you know, definitely working the, as a new, we're a new uh, school committee. We've been throwing this challenge and we're working around the clock and really um, figuring out how to be ready to adapt and pivot with new data and evidence. Uh, so that's why these models are evolving and nothing's final yet. So that's all to say, we're figuring it out. Uh, it's not gonna be school in person, um, uh, the, which is, you know, it's the first day of school, supposed to be September 8th. Um, that's also going to be pushed. So there's going to be no person in school, no in-person schooling. And the plans right now we that we've laid out, um, it would be school in some way would be starting September 16th. Right. Um, I did see that. And I saw that um, one of the things that you, you mentioned, the high viral load for, for kids, there's also um, some studies that came out to show that the virus, even when they're asymptomatic, is living in their lungs. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know the long-term pulmonary health effects for, for kids. And for me, I just feel like we don't have enough information right now around what um, what this virus means for our kids. And, you know, I almost wish that Desi would have said to us, you know, you know, remote for September and October, put together a really robust, you know, um, remote learning plan with some outside activities to get to know your teacher, to get to know the other students. Um, in September while the weather is nice and really figure out how we're going to deliver services to kids who are on IEPs mm -hmm. um, and, and really address our vulnerable students because I think because there's so many, there's almost like a, a million scenarios, right? It's like there's too many scenarios to really be planning for anything well. And right. you guys have had a tremendous job to do in trying to plan for those. I saw a quote yesterday in the, um, in the Globe around how it's just been so unfair that Desi has asked all educators to become epidemiologists in the last two months. And that's really, that's really the key is that our educators should be planning to educate our children. But right now they're focused on the epidemiology part and like the stat, the science part. And um, I think that that's a real tragic failing of um, the state level leadership in this case and uh, I am 
I am very interested in seeing how this is going to move forward. I mean, I did see the hybrid models that are being presented and proposed. And, you know, just looking at Major League Baseball and what has right. happened, it's like, I, I really think that our kids are, even if we do a hybrid, they're just not going to be in school that often, not often enough where I'm, I'm feeling like it would be worth the risk. So um, I know that we have a meeting coming up, uh, the city council and the school committee and a round table. It's the first time the city council is really going to be able to ask questions and weigh in on this issue because, you know, we've been focused on some other city side things and it doesn't mean that we're not involved or have opinions. It's just, I know yeah. you guys are working around the clock and you have so much more information than we do. Um, so yeah. And I wish the round table was next week because you know, presumably we have to take a, make a decision this week on what we're doing. So I'm going to try to see if there's any shifting I can do, but I, uh, it's the timing, you know, you just don't have, it's, it feels, yeah, it's really, it's just, it's really challenging. So, I did see anyway. that, I did see that the Mass Teachers Association um, mm -hmm. is, is probably going to suggest a strike. Yeah. Suggest that, that, um, educators don't return to the classroom so i mean i think things are just going to kind of continue to play out the way they're going to play out i think it's it's hard and then right. you, look, you look at you know there's there's an article in the globe today about how corporations are saying you know our employees don't need to come back until at least january right right, right. so it's like uh, so you know google and this place or that other place in boston they don't want to densify their their office buildings and then it's like well we're going to return to school so anyways there's just or you know you know i told you this like we were advised by the cambridge health department public health department not to have an outdoor graduation <laughs> you know uh, right. because it was going to be too dangerous but then it's like okay well <laughs> it's safe to reopen schools you know I, it just there's a disconnect in some ways um yeah. uh on on this and so i think we also know the transmission outside there should be some outdoor learning in general and there can be even with remote um but we have it's just there's been some mixed messages and just like uh, yeah i'm you know i'm really focused on the science and the data um and and going from there and and you know also recognizing that there are there's different some needs or there's a lot of different needs uh, but then there are families who also have, um, you know, there's families who've said, they've asked, you know, can I, can we take, a, can the students take a, you know, a gap year? Right. Uh, like all these, there's a lot of different scenarios and questions coming up. Um, but anyway, it, see these, see this black, <laughs> the lack of sleep. <laughs> well, <sighs> anyway. Keep us posted, keep us posted for sure. I will. All right, well, we had our summer meeting on Monday night and it was really long as we discussed and it was hot in the chamber. So thanks for being there. I enjoyed my air conditioned house um, <laughs> during that five hour meeting. The topics were really varied, but we wanted to bring you some of the highlights. What happened? So yeah, we're first excited to announce that Cambridge Public Libraries will be on its way to eliminate library fines. Uh, and this is something that uh, both of us were really excited to work on together. Yeah, so it's um, something we were working on before times, before COVID, um, and, you know, really looking at the research in Cambridge, particularly, that library fines um, disproportionately hit our lower income patrons and low income families have 
identified fines and fees as a real barrier and deterrent to the use of the library. So for example, the Central Square branch of the library has 9% of the library circulation, but has 16% of all blocked cards. And the O'Connell branch um, has 9% of all blocked cards, even though the O'Connell branch only has 5% of the library circulation. So the other really um, troubling piece in the data that we discovered was that fines also disproportionately hit our youth population. So 24% of all of the blocked Cambridge patrons um, are youth. So I know that one of the things you and I both have in common as, as you know, low income young people, for us, the library was an after school haven with caring librarians who, you know, always knew which books we wanted, always could help us with our homework. It was a safe space. It was a place um, of imagination. And, you know, I know you and I worked on this really hard because we both wanted that all kids in Cambridge would have that same experience. So I'm excited to see what a pilot will bring in terms of what other libraries across the country have um, reported when they go find free, which is more books and materials being returned, which was really, um, it seems counterintuitive. Uh, the increases in library card registrations, and then the patrons returning to the library after long absences. So we, um, as a city, collect around $70,000 each year in library fines. So for such a small amount of money, um, just knowing that our residents, especially our low-income youth, will continue to have access to the library, even if they lose a book or have library fines, is just critical. So I'm excited that this is happening. We're going to do a one-year pilot of a fine-free uh, library, and um, that should be starting really soon. So there's going to be a robust effort to get the marketing uh, out there. I asked that the library do some actual direct phone calls um, mm -hmm. to students, especially the young people, to let them know your fines have been forgiven. Um, you are welcome to come back to the library. Please come back to the library. So I think that kind of, um, you know, that interpersonal piece is going to be critical to welcoming students and youth back to the library. Yeah, and now we, you know, we the research that we did show that many of our surrounding towns do anyway. Um, right. you know, Watertown, uh, Arlington. Arlington. They're like, welcome to the club, right? <laughs> so we are we're excited about this. And speaking of the the library. Uh, the library is doing a weekly kids books to go at various branch libraries. And so uh, Monday, August 3rd at the, uh, I always mess up the name. Boudreaux. 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 Uh, branch uh, from 11 to 2. And then Saturday, August 8th, the Lente Library uh, branch uh, on Cambridge Street, 1 to 4. Speaking of books, um, just got a about 100 book plus and more coming. Uh, donation of books from Barefoot Books. Oh, that's uh, so great. They're here yeah. in Cambridge, right? Yeah, they're here in Cambridge and they're so great and they um, really want to help get books to uh, kids and the books that were delivered today are from zero to six. Um, oh, that's awesome. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, our offices will work to get these books to you all. Um, I kind of want to take some, but I just love <laughs> reading little kids' books. It just... I still have all my Bernstein Bear books. Oh my gosh. I know. Well, Order. <laughs> so we got to do a read aloud at the library um, two weeks ago and it was so cute. And all you could see all these kids' faces and they were like, we got to read our books to them aloud. We should definitely do that again. That was fun. We should, we should. Um, but anyway, thank you to uh, Barefoot Books and hopefully we'll be coming to you very soon. Uh, and another thing that we talked about at the council on Monday and uh, past, uh, was the Tenant Notification Act. Um, this is something that is really important, uh, especially now 
given uh, you know what's happening with uh, COVID and how families have faced so much financial hardship, uh, especially low-income families and residents. Uh, and so we, my office, uh, worked really closely with uh, the housing liaison Maura Penzik and and others uh, to come up with um, a tenant rights and resource notification act that would require owners and management companies to include rights and resource information when issuing eviction notices uh, including at the initial notice to quit stage uh, but we have also added um, at the leasing stage and that's something that um, Councilor McGovern brought up uh, on Monday night to include and so we'll edit this notification app a little bit we have um, until October 17th uh, when um, the eviction moratorium is ex expiring, uh, which was extended just, was it last week? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was supposed to be August 18th and thank goodness they extended it to October. Um, but you know, we're, we're kicking that can down the road and I think it's gonna be critical for us to be able to get that information to people on what to do. Because absolutely. There's so many people that we even talked to, right, that they only, you know they knew to call us but most people right. don't have any information on how to proceed what resources are available so this is really critical especially if we think about that kind of cliff effect in october of when all those evictions are going to start happening you know it's interesting too I, I saw a tweet yesterday that was like who are these imaginary um new rental people who are <laughs> like the whole rental market is totally off right right um, there's no students coming back. There are landlords right now that have, you know, uh, apartments just open for a few months, right? They can't get them leased. And so mm -hmm. they're, they're doing crazy things like, um, you know, there's no more um, leasing fees, right? Like the yep. one month leasing fee that people are getting two months free. So mm -hmm. I think um, it is really good to plan and we need to make sure to have that planning. But I do, it is a little bit like, who, who are these folks that they're going to rent to? I know, I know. It's just a such a different, like, it's a different world right now. Um, but totally, we've we've the council and you and I, we've I think we were really committed to this this tenant displacement piece, and uh, this is one small way that um, this will um, help our residents. So I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, we have to we have to vote on that on September 14th. It's going for a second reading for our next yeah. meeting. Okay. So that was that was an exciting one. I'm glad to uh, thank you for making sure that was on the agenda um, because the timing is so critical. Um, oh, another thing that we talked about on Monday night that has been in the news, uh, two police related issues. One, we had asked the police to provide an inventory um, of police equipment and vehicles and then that report was on the agenda on Monday night. So the report uh, was very comprehensive. It had photos of police equipment and vehicles, and it was a little bit eye-opening, um, I thought. Um, you know, some of the vehicles that, or one of the vehicles in question was a, a Lenko Bearcat that um, is termed a rescue vehicle. And it's something that, you know, I've, you know, even if you look in at Portland, what's happening in Portland right now, those vehicles are being used right now um, against residents of this country for for protesting peacefully or, or not peacefully, but um, it's really, it's kind of a scary looking thing and, and it's a question, do we need something like that here in Cambridge? So this was referred to our public safety committee for a broader conversation um, 
both on that vehicle and then a couple of the other items, I think, um, you know, we really need to have a conversation about. Then the second thing was, um, in terms of the police, uh, Councillor Zondervan and Sabrina Wheeler put in a policy order asking the city to look into replacing police traffic enforcement and possibly moving it to another city department like traffic and parking, human services, or the Department of Public Works. I exercised my charter right on this one, and I have to say, I'm not sure I've ever exercised my charter right before, um, but I, I really felt strongly that this one um, needed to take a little bit more time because in my reading of the Mass General Laws, police officers are statutorily required to perform this function in Massachusetts. And I asked the motion makers to use the next six weeks to confer with the city solicitor and the city manager uh, around the legality of what this police or, or this policy order is even asking. According to the Mass General Law 90C Section 2, um, it states each police chief shall issue citation books to each permanent full-time police officer of his department whose duties may or will include traffic duty or traffic law enforcement or directing and controlling traffic and to such other officers at as he at his discretion may determine. So it's my understanding that only a police officer can be given this duty and that the police chief or commissioner in this case can give this duty to other officers um, at his discretion. Sidebar, the mass general law language is deeply sexist, right? Mm. It says he so everywhere, <laughs> so canceled. It says he everywhere um, in the mm. function of the police chief. And in fact, our, our ordinances all refer to the city manager as he. Um, so. These I thought things. we changed that. Um, we changed it in one particular, it was um, one ordinance around oh, the yeah. Human Rights Commission. And then I had Fair suggested having, going yeah. back and, and doing the whole thing. And I thought everybody was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> it's a lot. Anywho, um, I do think that we should be looking into uh, removing the traffic enforcement function of speeding and running red lights with cameras, um, like they do in other places in other countries, um, that automatically send you a ticket if you run a red light or if you're speeding. Um, we were at the state house recently, and the state was looking for communities to partner with on a pilot program program for that. And Councillor Nolan and I discussed um, following up and seeing where that ended up because I, you know, that's an interesting way for us to think about that. Um, so anyway, it was, uh, oh yeah, there was a bill, right? Yeah. And they were looking for pilot communities. And I, when we were at the state house, they asked us if Cambridge would be interested and then COVID hit and then, you know, kaplooey, everything went. So we were going to follow up and see if, yeah. <laughs> if they're still looking for pilot communities. Cause that is an interesting way to think about it. Um, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's going to be. Yeah, I remember that. I don't know where it went, but yeah, WBZ or whatever, some of the news, whoever they are, they stalked me at City Hall, and <laughs> it was really funny. Um, <laughs> I, saw the, I saw the interview. Yeah, I said that I had a lot of questions about this, and yeah, blah blah blah. Um, but yeah, it was I was ambushed. Well, so I saw that interview of you. And you were outside City Hall, and then I later saw pictures of you with a, a Monopoly guy, like a big stuffed head, like Monopoly person with a monocle and everything. Was it at, like, was he standing there at the yeah, same time? So I thought so. This whole Monopoly thing, um, details on that. Um, but they, they're like, oh, yes, we're gonna have some, we're just doing photos. I know the news was, news was going to be there. And so while they're interviewing me about Monopoly, they're like, oh, yeah, also this policy order. I was like, oh, okay. It, was just, it caught me off guard. Um, I just wanted, anyway. I wish that the Monopoly guy had like creeped into this 
because <laughs> that would have been so peak peak Cambridge. <laughs> I know he was he was he was a nice nice guy and it was so hot in there. But yeah, we can talk about it later. But it's uh well, I can just say for reveal to you now. Uh, while we're on the topic. So we are going to get our own, the city of Cambridge is going to have its own Monopoly version. So like, it'll be like Brattle Street. Well, here's uh, the thing. You, the public, can use a hashtag, hashtag Cambridge Monopoly to tag your favorite spots for oh. Cambridge and they might end up in the board. I was corny and I said um, City Hall because I live here. But I also... I wanted to say Museum of Science because I sweat that museum. <laughs> what about um, Star- hashtag Starlight Square? Oh, I know. So I'm, we're going to be doing some more publicity around it and saying, you know, tag your favorite places. Can I tell you, like, I, I won't tell you this, but I, I, I had a, I, I, um, I only recently played Monopoly. So what? I, I, I'm were you guys like not a board game family? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, my, if I, if I was like, mom, I was like, let's play a board game. She'd just be like, what is a board game? You know, like, what is this stuff? We don't do that in South Asian culture. No way. <laughs> no board games. Like I just do puzzles for the first time. Okay. Like didn't even do puzzles. Like I, I just, I mean, my parents are amazing, but like they were working, and like, yeah, of course, yeah. Put, that's why I'm addicted to TV. They just put us in front of the TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was. And so now you get it, right? I get it. I get it. Like we were. No I was. I was a latchkey kid, so it was like all about after school TV, or I went to the library. Um, but we definitely played board games. But I, I was more with my so my grandmother was around a lot and so she always played board games my mom was way too busy she's a single mom she was like doing ironing and working (laughs) i do like the occasional board games now i'm not like a huge fan but like i'm i'm getting into it so monopoly is like something like you know it's very new to me um but i believe that in the the in the cabinet in your office there is a board game called cambridge monopoly already Really? Yeah, I, I will find it for you. It was there when I worked there. Oh, all right. Well, this is. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't like the real Monopoly people. It oh, was okay. like some like fake thing. But um. Anyways. Okay. The, but it's new Monopoly. This is real Monopoly. Real people. Monopoly. Okay. 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 All right. I I can't wait to see more pictures of you go with that big headed guy thing. <laughs> um. One of the other things that came up on Monday night was um, a city manager agenda item to update the mayor's disaster relief fund to include arts organizations um, and be able to have access to some of that funding for some of our arts organizations who are really, really struggling. So I feel like you and I have been sounding the alarm on the impact that this virus is gonna have on our art sector and in particular our performance art sector. So these guys are in a really uniquely vulnerable position. So I meet weekly with our arts recovery group here in Cambridge, and it's really dire. So unlike, you know, retail or restaurants, they can't do, you know, curbside pickup or deliver to your door. Um, They really have lost their ability to provide programming because they need physical space, which hasn't been possible since early March. And a lot of these places, because they're phase four, I mean, we're still in phase three as a state. In phase four, they're saying it, it likely won't even be until January 2021 at the earliest. So meanwhile, they also have rent, they have payroll costs, they have insurance fees, um, you know, and there hasn't been federal or any state funding, any significant funding for this 
sector. Um, and for them to reopen, you know, we we're talking about schools and reopening and, you know, around uh, ventilation, around um, physical distancing. So for the arts, it means reducing occupancy um, to, you know, 25%, eliminating or adjusting other sources of income like concessions, uh, interesting one, and then upgrading HVAC and ventilation systems, installing hand-washing facilities or updating bathrooms. Um, that all requires a tremendous amount of financial investment. So it's really up to the city to help this sector, which is a, it's a huge economic driver here in the city. Uh, it's um, at the last study, it was 5,000 jobs and it's $175 million worth of economic revenue in Cambridge annually that the arts brings in. So really just like we need a main street to return to. Um, and then we've supported small businesses through grants, through the Mayor's Disaster Relief Fund. We really need the arts to come back strong um, whenever they're allowed to reopen. And that really, that that's relies on us. And one of the mechanisms that we have at our disposal uh, is the mayor's arts or the mayor's disaster relief fund. But currently the way it's written, um, we can't help uh, this particular sector. So this was um, asked the city manager asking for an amendment, a uh, temporary amendment um, to the mayor's disaster relief fund to allow um, funding to come to the sector through that, through the fund. So Unfortunately, um, Councillor Simmons exercised her charter right, which means that um, we will not be able to get to this amendment until September 14th, which unfortunately, I, I'm just gonna say it, I think um, we will have a couple of our institutions that will just have to close their doors forever. And so that's really tragic. And um, right. it, I think- Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I, I, you know, it was, it was really frustrating because all of us on the committee, most of us, except Councillor Simmons, supported this. Um, and it wasn't very clear why she wasn't supportive. And so, um, I mean, I I, I'm, we're thinking about, I'm thinking about how we can get this on the agenda before, you know, s September, because I think that is important. And then you also feel like We've, we're both very much in agreement about this. It is very COVID specific and it's an urgency. Um, and as you've mentioned, the city has, uh, you know, distributed about 3.6 million to Cambridge small businesses who've been impacted by COVID, right? We partnered with the Cambridge Redevelopment Authority to, and their zero interest loan program. Um, we received over 550 applications for these programs. Programs we provided more than 4,400, uh, not 4,400, 440 grants and loans to assist these businesses, and more than 65% were recipients were uh, women, minority or women um, and minority-owned businesses, which is really important. And so we also recognize that the mayor's disaster relief. We wanted to help nonprofits too, so we both pushed for. Uh, the, uh, the city to use the community benefit money that mostly comes from MIT um, mm. to be allocated to nonprofits. So the city awarded one million in grants to 106 Cambridge nonprofits uh, to to provide COVID-related services that they were providing since COVID hit. And so this piece of it falls directly into you know the the line of I wish we could have done it all at the same time, obviously, but really you know. Right. We've been meeting with um, many of these key partners, uh, many of whom you've worked so closely with during your task force, um, who are saying they, they need help and they weren't 
eligible for you know either the this nonprofit funding that came from the city recently they weren't eligible for the small business funding right so there, it's a very niche um, area and the monies that have been allocated through other grants they've been like slim pickings you right. know they haven't been these these um grants that they need so we're you know we got to keep pushing because you just said it right like we're going to lose some of these really important institutions yeah I, we were having our meeting on wednesday and you know somebody brought up the ems building and mm -hmm. um you know, I think it's important for us to recognize and understand that we're about to have five to 10 EMF buildings. Exactly. And exactly. so, I, you know, I, I think, you know, there are so many urgent things to worry about. And it, it, it is hard to, to think ahead and think, gosh, you know, if we don't help support some of these arts organizations and performance arts organizations now, we're just not going to have a sector to return to. And in the greater Boston area, they bring in $2 billion um right. annually uh, more than all of the sports teams uh the celtics the bruins the red sox uh more than all of them to get you know put together so it is it is an economic issue it is a it's a square driven issue if you think about um nobody coming to the dance complex or improv boston or central square theater who's eating at the restaurants who's going to the bars who's you know there is going to be a post-COVID at some point, um, and so we need to plan for what that looks like and, and help and support in some way. So hopefully we can get that taken care of before September, because I do think it is incredibly urgent. Um, mm -hmm. And so anyway, so that, that is another, that's an, something else that happened on Monday night. And um, yeah, and then we had, um, we also talked about the transfer fee. So this is an idea that's been coming up over and over again since Council Toomey first brought it up in 97 or was it 87? I Something, don't I don't even know. <laughs> no comment. Um, so, uh, you know, instituting a real estate transfer fee is one of the critical ways we can generate funding for affordable housing, uh, for the our affordable housing trust. Uh, and so it's something that we've, as a city, have talked about um, quite frequently, but has, uh you know been stalled and at the city council level level the city we've as a city council asked the city solicitor to produce language for a transfer fee home rule petition several times um and we never received any drafts uh and so this policy order that came before us suggested um some language and under this provision both sellers and buyers in a residential and commercial real estate transaction would be taxed one percent of the purchase price above one million dollars um, and although the $1 million threshold seems low amid skyrocketing high, you know, housing prices, uh, we both are looking forward to talking about this um, at the Ordinance Committee. Um, I think we should explore the feasibility of raising this fee um, to 2% for commercial real estate transactions to generate even more funding for affordable housing. So I think we have some more conversations to go. Um, and so this was forwarded to the ordinance committee for further discussion. I think there's some stuff happening at the state house as we speak. I don't know where um, that bill stands, but I know that this was some cities had submitted their own home rule petitions, um, some Ravello, Boston, um, and some others. But I think this is one one tool in the toolbox. It won't. It's not the 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 silver bullet to solve our crisis, right? Which we know there is not a silver bullet. Right, right. There's, there has to be 
I wish there was. Um, there has to be a combination of tools in your toolbox. So that happened. Um, what else happened? Uh, we also filed for um, a domestic partnership uh, ordinance. Yeah. So that was filed by you, uh, myself, Councillor McGovern, and Councillor Zondervan um, to amend the city's domestic partnerships ordinance to recognize domestic partnerships between more than two adults. So Somerville recently made the news um, nationally um, to make such a change to their ordinance. And it's a, a really amazing opportunity for Cambridge to promote or to further promote inclusivity and ensure non-traditional families feel heard and represented in our community. So um, the ordinance, it will be sent to the city solicitor to review the proposed changes. And <clears throat> the LG, the Cambridge LGBTQ plus commission discussed this topic at their recent meeting and um, they suggested that they would like to be part of any um, language that gets written because they had some, they had some suggestions that they thought um, weren't covered in the Somerville ordinance and that they would like to see. So it was really interesting to, to hear some, some members of the public call in and, and say that this was the first time that they felt very seen by their city um, municipal government. And that was really powerful for me. I mean, there was, you know, definitely at, at least one or two that I, I, we knew personally. And so I, I think that's one of the amazing things about being in local government is that you can, you can help your, the residents really feel seen um, with something like this that uh, may not have crossed your mind because you're not in a polyamorous relationship, but that, you know, lots of people are, and it's something that we need mm -hmm. to, to really make sure that we are, are being inclusive and continue uh, to be inclusive. Cambridge has a reputation of being inclusive. And so this is just another furthering of that. Yeah. I was really um, happy to offer this and have, you know, you and others co-sponsor with me, you know, I think it's really an important acknowledgement of the various ways that, and I said this on my head, that people love and show their commitment to one another. Um, and, you know, how we as a student have to strive to think about how we, we have to be as inclusive as possible. And um, we can talk about it, but if we actually don't demonstrate it with our actions, then shame on us. And so uh, it was awesome hearing people calling in, you know, I was, I was like, it was really, it was great. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're happy to, I think amid all of the COVID-19 and other things that, you know, we have tried to focus as a council on other, um, you know, really key policy initiatives around, you know, these library fines piece, the, the, um, this tenant rights piece, these, um, you know, transfer fee arts. We've, it's been a lot of different subject areas. I mean, we're halfway through the year, believe it or not, Alana. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. So it's been, <laughs> there's been so much accomplished. Uh, it also just feels, um, yeah, it's just so hard. Uh, anyway, so the we do have a few final things we wanna leave with, which one thing is very important. Yes, so vote by mail 2020. Voting by mail is available to all voters for all elections in 2020. You don't need an excuse to vote by mail this year. All you need to do to vote by mail is to complete a vote by mail application and then deliver the application to the Cambridge Election Commission by email, mail, or fax um, to 51 Inman Street. So I actually got, um, we actually got our vote by mail um, forms mailed to us. I've already mailed them back. 
Um, I'm very excited about this. I think it's um, critical to our uh, elections, both in September. Weirdly, our primary um, is on September 1st this year. Uh, so get your vote by mail back in as soon as possible, because then you can vote in the primary by mail in August, which is exciting. Um, we've got a pretty heated up Senate race between Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy. And so mm -hmm. everybody's going to want to vote in that primary um, before September 1st. So yeah, definitely do that. Um, and then final update, the Star, the Central Square Business Improvement District is in the midst of transforming Lot 5 into Starlight Square, uh, which is a temporary venture that will include an outdoor amphitheater with physically distant seating, a courtyard for dining and dialogue, a community center for summer learning and food distribution, and the Central Square Farmers Market. Um, and so this is going to be, this lot's going to be closed throughout the fall. They're taking um, donations through a site called, um, how do you say it, Freetown City? Pa Patronicity. Patronicity, and they're hoping to raise 250K. Uh, we both donated. Um, I got some shirts. I know I'm excited about my shirt. Yeah. Um, have you have you gone by and seen what it looks like? Yeah, it's awesome. Amazing. So they put the mural up of Bob and Janet Moses yesterday, which is yeah. like their faces now. And then when they were younger, it's an amazing, beautiful uh, mural that's on the Norfolk Street side. And then on the Bishop Allen Street sign, there's a beautiful photographs of protests. Um, I just I am so excited about this. And your friend Nina was the one, Nina Berg, who came up with the idea. Is that right? Yep, Nina Berg. Shout out to you and uh, Matthew Boyd Watson, my oh, two right. high school classmates. Um, so huge shout out, um, CRLS Pride. Yeah, and so speaking of the performing arts, one of the one of the big things that will happen in Starlight Square is those cultural, you know, organizations that don't have a, a space right now are going to be able to perform outside. So the Central Square Theater, the Dance Complex, Improv Boston will all be using Starlight Square to provide uh, programming for Cambridge residents uh, outside underneath the stars in Starlight Square. Um, if you don't know where parking lot five is, if you're not like deeply steeped in Cambridge, um, it's the parking lot right behind H Mart. Uh, mm -hmm. on Bishop Allen Drive in Norfolk, where the Cambridge Farmer's Market is uh, every Monday, which is staying, by the way. Everyone was like, where is the Farmer's Market going to go? Oh, my God. I wish there was more space for them. We did, my office did receive some complaints oh, no. around the space and some from some elderly. Oh. Um, I emailed the city manager about it, but didn't hear back. So you, have to, you have to walk in from the Norfolk Street side, and it's a one-way, right? And then you right. exit off into the... So I think there were some issues, and so you know, you know, elderly have you know, people like routine. So oh, for like, sure. I like a routine. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> like, I do too. What am I saying? I just am not used to it. You I'm like elderly. <laughs> I love routine. Team me all day in my bed. <laughs> okay, well, it was great to see you and see. I hope people enjoy looking at us. Yeah, this the is the first time, time we're doing this. Uh, I don't know. It's distracting. Our faces. I know. <laughs> I kept. I kept drinking my seltzer. <laughs> oh, good, thing was, free just, good thing it was just seltzer. And <laughs> coffee and coffee. But I, I love, oh, I love seltzer. Can I just say, I have, I just, I just love seltzer. <laughs> like, this is what's getting me through. It's getting you through. It's, it's, it's so innocuous that you're, that's, that it's seltzer, it's seltzer getting right? you through. Everyone else oh. is like, 
out of van. <laughs> well, I'm glad people can, you know, or, you know, watching this, like, you know, I'm, this is my, this is, this is what keeps me going, guys. We should so. see if they want to be a paid sponsor of Women Are Here. Can we? With the product placement. Deal. Oh, I know. I saw that. They just got a huge deal, and they were talking about how they're the number one company in New England, um, b beside, behind Bubbly. Ew, I can't even believe that. I don't um, even know what that is. It's seltzer, but it's not good. Okay. Um, and La Croix. I like La Croix, but sure. you know, I'm a polar girl. Um, so I have so much polar in my fridge, but I keep running out. And they're like, they're talking about how much money polar makes. I'm like, how much money am I spend on polar? My mom doesn't get it. My mom is like, "Why do you keep drinking these sugary drinks?" She's sugary like, though, are they? She just thinks they're soda. Literally, she thinks they're soda, and I'm like, oh, and she's okay. like, "Stop drinking soda." Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, there goes my phone. So I can't. All right, I gotta go. Well, bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye.